Good morning, I'm Joel. For any of you just joining us, welcome to Heart City Church. I've been sitting on this sermon for three weeks. It won't be three times as long, I promise. We return this morning to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 18, and probably to a well-known parable, really at the heart of Luke's Gospel. I want to contemporize it so that it might actually impact us like it did Jesus' original audience. So here goes. One Sunday, two men came to Heart City Church. Bill came in first. He dropped in his 20% tithe, went to the front row, and began to pray. Bill's been a member his whole life. He knows every hymn by heart, doesn't even need to look at the bulletin. And he actually knows every part of Scripture very well. He actually graduated recently from Bible college. He intends to be a chaplain after seminary. Yesterday morning, uh, Bill got up early, cleaned the church. Then he ran errands for his elderly neighbor. In the afternoon, he volunteered as a little league baseball coach for local kids. In the evening, he had some fun. He took his girlfriend, Sue, out for a date. They had a pleasant evening at a nice restaurant where they talked about their favorite books, gardening, and even a fundraiser to save an endangered penguin species. Bill got Sue home promptly by 10 o'clock. He was in bed by 11 so that he'd be sure to make it into church in time to have plenty of time for prayer before the service. During the call to confession, Bill hears a noise in the back. He looks and he sees Bob walk through the back doors. He hasn't seen Bob since high school. Bob was a troublemaker. He was into drugs, constantly in a fight, suspended from school. He actually dropped out. Bill looked back and he wondered about Bob's motives. Why in the world is he here? Bob never notices Bill's stares, but he actually has the same question about why he is here. Bob's night was not near as tame. He was actually at the Main Street bar until late. His girlfriend Judy blew up at him when she found out that Bob had cheated on her. Actually turned into a fist fight right there in the bar. And the last thing Bob remembers is being tossed out in the back alley after a right hook across the face. Bob woke up that morning on the asphalt. His car was smashed up, so he began walking home. And on the way, his head is pounding. And it dawned on him that his life was just a complete and total mess. Judy was not the only person he had hurt. He had actually three other kids through three different women who didn't know him. His parents would not talk to him because he had stolen from them so many times. As Bob paused to dig into his pockets to see if he had change enough to buy a pint, he found himself staring at the cross in the Heart City Church sign. And he had a flashback. He remembered being a boy in Bible camp. And he remembered saying the sinner's prayer. He had felt so near to God at that moment. But today he couldn't imagine being farther away. Maybe, just maybe, he could pray that same prayer again to God. So Bob walks in through the back door. He sits in the back, bows his head, and as we confess our sins, begins to weep like a baby. Bill can't help but hear the noise and looks back at this wretched man. And he can't help but mutter, Thank God I'm not like Bob. And now the question for you, my friends. Which of these two fellows do you think will go to heaven? Let's pray that God will open our eyes to find our own way there. Please join me in prayer before we read our word. Heavenly Father, 
our time is short, our need is great. Will you show us marvelous things from your word, and will you show us most particular marvelous Savior? We pray this in the name of Jesus, the only Savior of the world. Amen. So please turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 18. We're going to be looking at verses 9 through 14. Luke 18, starting in verse 9. He, speaking of Jesus, also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Not exactly sure the means by which you ended up this morning here at Heart City Church or even joining us online, but I do know that Jesus has been looking forward to speaking to you today. Though he's in heaven, he continues to speak by his spirit through his word And today's message is significant because it asks us a very uncomfortable question. Here it is. What if the things you like most about yourself are your greatest spiritual danger? What if the things that you like most about yourself are your greatest spiritual danger? Now, we live in a culture that tells you the exact opposite. This absolutely contradicts the very essence of today's culture of self-affirmation. We're swimming in it. Our culture is all about approving, accepting, affirming what I like most about me. Right? But friends, Jesus says that what you are outwardly before an approving world, and even you're feeling good about yourself, are no indicator that you're okay. I remember watching this amazing college basketball player when I was in high school. His name was Hank Gathers. He played for a smaller college, Loyola Marymount. I first saw him when they were playing LSU, this big school, and he went toe-to-toe with Shaquille O'Neal. Hank Gathers led college his junior year in scoring, in both scoring and rebounding. Only second player in history to do that. His senior year, listen to this, Hank was pacing a team that averaged 122 points a game. NBA scouts were projecting Hank to be a top pick. He was so great. Now, do you know that very same year, Hank's doctor gave him a warning? He said that while externally, Hank appeared to be at the top of his game, internally he was not okay. He said, Hank, you have a heart condition that needs both monitoring and regular medication. But Hank didn't like the medication because it slowed down his performance. On Sunday, March 4th, Hank was dominating a tournament game where a large crowd was cheering him on. 
He caught a first half alley-oop and slam dunk the basketball, put his team up by a dozen points. 13 seconds later, he collapsed on the court. The athletic trainers came out to Hank and Hank was heard yelling, and it may have been his last words, I don't want to lay down. I don't want to lay down. And then Hank stopped breathing. Hank died at 23 years old. You know that prior to the tournament, Hank skipped his doctor's appointments? And it's reported that he stopped taking his medication, and the school may have been complicit. They settled out of court. I don't know. It's a tragedy, however it fell out. What Hank liked most about himself was his basketball skills and the approval he got. And he trusted he was fine as the world cheered him on. And it ended in disaster, and Jesus does not want us to make this same mistake. What you like most about yourself and taking in the world's approval for it can be disastrous. And Dr. Jesus wants to diagnose our heart condition, and he also wants to hold forth a cure. Notice Luke tells us what Jesus' parable is about here from the beginning. He also told this parable to some who trusted in their own righteousness, trusted themselves that they were righteous, and treated others with contempt. So what are we trusting in for our righteousness? And I know that in our culture, we don't hear that word righteous very well. If someone calls someone righteous, you're probably actually insulting them. But it's a positive word in Jesus' day. To be righteous simply means to be approved, to be accepted, be accepted by God. The gospel tells us not to trust in what we feel good about. It tells us to rest in Jesus' perfect work and person, his righteousness. Allow his perfect righteousness to work for us. And if you're a Christian, you've heard this how many times? You know this. You start coming to take in Jesus' word and the gospel. And what happens, though, as you begin to advance in your Christian life, as you read, as you pray, you come to church, the Holy Spirit begins to work change in you. And you begin to live a better life, right? It's called sanctification, where you're being renewed in the whole man after the image of God and dying more and more to sin and living more and more unto righteousness. It's great. Then what happens as you start living a better life? Pride. Wow, look at me. I'm really performing at a high level. And you're biking to church in the morning, and you see this idiot driving on the road. And you're like, will you get a load of them? How can they be so depraved? I would never drive like that. Or live like that. Or treat people like that. I would never. Never compare yourself with others. Ever look down on others and say, how could they? Ever say this? I would never. You ever look at others with contempt because you're living better than them? Jesus say believers are as prone or maybe more prone to exalt themselves. And he tells the story of two men who go up to the temple to pray. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and one a tax collector. Now I began with the illustration of Bill and Bob to help us understand how to view these individuals. If you know your Bible, with Pharisees, they're bad guys, right? Jesus constantly comes against them. But to Jesus' original audience, the Pharisees are the good guys. If you have a daughter, you want them dating a Pharisee. The Pharisees are the guys who were Bible-believing conservatives, preservers of culture, conservative values. 
They would be really concerned about Israelites living good moral lives according to God's law. And they preached to not be corrupted by the pagan Romans and their influence as it was trying to come in. We're soon going to be nominating leaders here at Heart City Church again. If some Pharisees joined us, I think they would be prime candidates. I mean, think about it. They live godly lives. They're able to teach Bible studies. They'd be great tithers. Pharisees actually gave 20% of their tithe. Pharisees would be paying a large portion of my salary. Well, until I started preaching about them, maybe. Now, a tax collector, exact opposite boat. They were despised by everybody. Even a tax collector's mom would say, that's not my son. He's a crook. They saw them as Jews who had sold their souls to Rome because that's what they had done. They had bought a special allowance so that they could collect for Rome. And remember, Rome is an enemy occupier. This would be like a Ukrainian. Okay, the Russians come in and a Ukrainian who is selling your people out for the Russians. And imagine Bob. Bob rolling up in a fancy car to collect the $200 you owe as tax to Rome. And he knocks on the door and he says, pay me $400 that you owe. And you say, wait a minute, Bob, I only owe $200. And he snaps his fingers again. And two Romans step out of his car, Roman soldiers. He says, you want to do this the easy way or the hard way? You see, a tax collector could add anything they wanted for their take. So long as they got their money for Rome, and Rome gave them the muscle to do whatever they wanted. So who is Jesus' audience thinking is the good guy and the bad guy in this story? It's tax collectors as bad as you can be. And Jesus' audience would be just shocked that he even showed up to pray. Because they actually weren't allowed in the temple worship. So here they are. They show up to pray. Which of them do you think that is going to be accepted by God? Verse 11 the Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. What do you think of this prayer? You smell something wrong with it, right? Right off the bat. Actually, this morning we just passed around a thank you card to a supporting church you know, that helped us get Heart City started. So what do you think? This thank you card, we send it to Grace Reformed, and they open the card and it said this, thank you, Grace, that Heart City Church is not like other churches, Catholics, Charismatics, or even Independent Baptists. We meet twice a week. Oh, and we're so giving too. They accept that like a thank you card? No, it'd be like public self-congratulations. Now, the Greek here is really deliberately ambiguous because it actually communicates that he is praying about himself while posing in front of everyone. He separated himself and put himself out in front. But give him a little credit. His thanks to God shows he believes in grace. He's kind of saying, hmm, but for the grace of God, there go I. Isn't he? You ever said that? But it's really only a sideways glance at God. Because the rest is I, 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 I. And he begins to list off all the things that set him apart. All the things he likes about himself. He gives his spiritual resume of all his great external behavior. Anybody remember our Galatians study? 
there's that verse, chapter 3, verse 3. Having begun by the Spirit, God's work, are you now being perfected by the flesh? And this Pharisee thinks exactly that. He's praying like he's perfect. J.C. Ryle says, well, this prayer is suitable for an angel, but not for a sinner. How can he think he is not a sinner? How can he act like he's a perfect angel? Well, because he's entirely focused only on the external things in comparison to others. He looks back at his week. I did my fasting. I have my tithe. I can't wait to get to church to thank God for how great I am. See his first problem? How much glory is God getting and God's spirit at work in him for all his accomplishments? How much glory? And we see the second problem. He sees that he has no needs. He never once asks God for help in any way. Friends, Jesus is saying that excessive celebration of only your external triumphs is actually dangerous. And many American churches, we briefly touched on this in Sunday school, have been infected with exceptionalism and triumphalism. That's why so many churches today tend to only sing happy songs, celebrating as if we've already arrived. I could talk for long about this, but we have a history. We believe we entered the promised land where the pilgrims and a lot of people first come. We think we have already arrived. It's dangerous if we only see church as our happy place. It's dangerous if this is only seen as our happy place. Ronald Wallace writes, We should not lay too much stress, stress on our religious feelings. The Pharisee had beautiful religious feelings when he went to the temple. Do you see how happy he was to come to church? Now get this, look where Ronald Wallace goes next. He felt right with God and with life. So comforting were his religious feelings that he felt sure he was in the kingdom of God. His heart told him so, but his heart told him a lie. You ever been deceived by your heart? You ever let Roxette sing to you, listen to your heart and find out, oops. I know I have. In the story of Pilgrim's Progress, Christian meets a fellow who says he's on his way to heaven. He didn't come through the wicket gate, you know, and all. And, and Christian asks, how do you know you're on your way to heaven? And the fellow says, I know the Lord's will. I lived a good life. I pray, fast, give tithes, and I left my country to get here, get there. And Christian presses him to ask him how he is persuaded he left, left all for God in heaven. And the fellow answers, my heart tells me so. And Christian quotes to him Proverbs 28, 26. He who trusts his own heart is a fool. The fellow says, you speak of an evil heart, but mine is a good one. My heart and life agree. And Christian says, who told you that your heart and life agree? And the fellow answers, my heart tells me so. You know the fellow's name? Ignorance. And if you read on, ignorance doesn't make it to heaven. Like the Pharisee, he has not considered whether he might have a heart problem. Do you notice there's absolutely nothing in his prayer about his attitude or his motives, anything inner? It's all externals. Let me ask, 
what are the motives of our good behavior? What are the motives of his good behavior? Does he love to tithe because he cares so much about the poor people? Does he choose not to commit adultery because it would offend the God he loves? Or does he avoid cheating because he loves his faithful man reputation? Or maybe he saw how adultery wrecked Bill's life or Bob's life. And you know what? His faithfulness is all about him protecting his own future and self-interest. Friends, Jeremiah 17.9 is a verse we should constantly remember. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can know it? None of us can. The Lord searches the heart. That's why we have to come to the Word again and again and again. It's also why we need to learn to pray with the posture of sinners, even as we are saints. By the way, everyone prayed like this all the way up to this point in the Bible, and it seems like people in church history at this moment get, we need to start praying differently. The prayer, the posture, the tax collector. This parable is connected actually to the parable that came before, the praying widow. Jesus was teaching that God will vindicate his praying saints who don't lose heart. But now Jesus is teaching that God will vindicate his praying saints who understand that until we reach heaven, we do have a part problem. We're still sinners. Enter the tax collector. He's a noisy guy. Got a little quiet in here. Actually, we don't mind having children teaching us how to scream and shout in church. The tax collector standing far off would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. He's not quiet. Standing far off would not even lift his eyes to heaven. What's the picture here? The scene that comes to my mind is of my first dog. I had a black lab mix we named Sheba. She was a smart dog, very smart. She was very sensitive, always wanting to please me too. Not like the current dog I have, which is very, very stubborn. Now I remember Sheba would go absolutely bananas every time I came home and walked through the door, which is why it was so strange that one day I got home, I walked in and nothing. No happy dog wagging a tail, excited to see me. And I soon saw and smelled the reason why. Sheba had an accident in the house. And she knew she shouldn't have done that. So she was off in the corner, standing far off, like the tax collector. And I coaxed her to come to me, saying, it's all right, it's all right, come here. And she finally began to come, but her head was down. She wouldn't even look me in the eye. She'd made a mess, and she was so ashamed of what she had done, she couldn't even lift her eyes up to see her master. That's the picture of this tax collector here. He knows he's a rotten dog before God, and he's tore up about it. He's beating his breast, asking God for mercy. When's the last time we've done this? And Jesus commends this man and then says, This man's going to heaven. Guy who crapped all over the house. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. I will explore why this is, but I know I've raised the questions in the minds of some pet lovers to my wife. 
I'm not saying that Sheba went to heaven and our current stubborn dog will not. I would be concerned if I'm a if I was a cat lover, since we know cats are incapable of remorse, but that does not mean there's no hope for them. Either talk to Dave afterwards because he is an expert on pets making it to heaven. So I leave it to Dave. But back to the tax collector. Jesus says he's justified, which means he is declared, not on his own, he is declared righteous in God's sight. Why is he justified? Why is he the one going to heaven? The good news is his because he accepted the bad news, that he was not merely far from perfect, but that he confessed he had offended a holy God and he said the sinner's prayer. He asked for mercy, and this is not the typical word for mercy we'll see later on with blind Bartimaeus. This isn't the same word, not the typical word. It's only found here in Luke, and it's hilaskamai, which means be propitiated, which has to do with sacrifice, appeasing the wrath of an angry God. Hang with me, this is important. Do you know what the Pharisee and the tax collector were witnessing at this hour of prayer? They would watch a helpless little lamb be led down to the place of sacrifice where it was held down and despite all its pleading, they would hold it down, they would take a knife, they'd slit its throat while it's bleeding until it can't and then all the blood is poured out all over. Why was this lamb slain at the hour of prayer? To propitiate, to remove the anger of God against the people's sins. This is, you find this through the whole Old Testament, all the way up until finally the sacrifice of Jesus. And thank God we don't have to do that anymore. But this tax collector understood that God was showing in this bloody sacrifice that God was just. He must deal with all sins. And we want that. You want Putin getting off the hook or Hitler or anybody else? No, God will punish all sin, including our own. And he gets this. The tax collector says, I've made a mess. And he says, remove your anger from me, the sinner. I know your Bible has a sinner here, but, and I know they probably translate this because a, the sinner sounds confusing, but the definite article's here. I think the reason Luke does this here is because he's not comparing himself with anyone else. He stands alone before God and he says, I am the sinner. I'm not looking at anybody else. I'm only looking at me for you, a holy God. Have mercy. And then the surprise. Can you imagine? The crowd, as they hear Jesus say, the bad guy goes home justified. He's going to heaven. Jesus declares a notorious sinner as righteous before holy God. And all he did was say one beggar prayer. I think this may be about the last straw for the religious leaders. Only God can declare forgiveness. you realize what Jesus is doing here? And more, no one would believe that God could forgive such a person. It's only a matter of weeks before these same leaders are going to turn Jesus over to die. Which, ironically, was all part of God's plan to take away God's anger from his people, to propitiate. The Father sent his beloved Son to be the Lamb who was slain from before the foundation of the world, who would save those who would turn to him. Right here in Luke, Jesus 
can say this because he is willingly heading to his own slaughter, ready to have his blood poured out so that we can know his forgiveness for our sins, that God's mercy might flow out freely so that we can sing songs in a service today, praising God that his mercy is more. And Jesus then confirms his verdict with this principle, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and everyone who humbles themselves will be exalted. Now, this is not the first time Jesus says this. Why the repeat? He said it back in Luke 14. I suspect we need to really get this in because most of us think we're called to humility because we're sinners. I think that's what most Reformed Christians think. Do you realize that the humility principle began in Genesis 1? Not Genesis 3? We were to be humble because God made us as finite creatures dependent on God, dependent on each other, and dependent on our world. We're creatures. We're needy. We're finite. And that's not a bad thing. Being a creature is not a bad thing. Remember God's verdict right after making our first parents, Adam and Eve, in chapter 1 of Genesis? God declares, very good over his creatures. Very good. That's the verdict. And they lived in perfect relationship with God, naked and unashamed. Can you imagine what they lost? Can you imagine what they had? A relationship with the God who created the stars and named each and every one of them. Who in Isaiah 40, the God who holds the oceans in the palm of his hand. I can't even hold a tablespoon of water without losing it. Can you imagine communion with this God who declares you are very good and who planned to exalt you even more? Adam and Eve had a test of obedience. And then Adam and Eve decided to become rule breakers. They tried to exalt themselves. They sinned, and now all of us are naked and ashamed, and we're craving the very good, that verdict that we lost. The good news comes because Jesus came to save the lost by humbling himself all the way to the cross and by being exalted in his resurrection so that we have a way to heaven and we can finally rest and know that verdict is true of us. But even as believers, we're still craving the very good and sometimes we can try and help the gospel. And when you try to add to what Christ has done by your rule keeping, when you try to help the gospel, you lose the gospel. Do you see what's happening here with the Pharisee? We need to lay down and simply say, I cannot do it. I'm always a humble sinner in need of mercy until I get to glory. That goes not only for the rule keeper Pharisees among us, but also the rule breakers who also exalt themselves. I know us as rule keepers, we tend to look down on rule breakers and we exalt ourselves well. What about rule breakers who are not yet Christians? Maybe you're watching. You look down on the self-righteous Pharisees, you exalt yourself similarly. I'm thankful that I'm not like those self-righteous believers who go to church every Sunday, those holier-than-thou, halo-wearing Jesus people. I'm transparent. I never go to church. I lie. I curse every day. I tell it how I see it, even if it offends. I spend my life looking out for number one. I never put on a show. I am authentic. 
what you like about yourself most as a proud pagan is just as dangerous. You see, self-confident rule breakers and self-confident rule keepers have the same exact problem. We're both trying to exalt ourselves, justify ourselves. We're trying to be our own savior. And here's what's underneath it. We all want to matter. We all want to matter. I know one thing about every person I meet. They want to touch God. They want to do something that matters, and they want to belong. We're trying to get the very good verdict, whether it comes by being very good or by being very bad. We seek approval from others by external means, but it's never enough. How many stars have we watched who ascend to the top and their lives are miserable? Everyone is seeking approval, acceptance, affirmation by things we like about us. We place stock in being an athlete, being a good mother, a good student, a hard worker. And we get the starting position on the team or we get the acceptance letter. We get the praise. Ah, it's a very good verdict. And we get glory for a minute. For a minute because we're finite. Or if it doesn't come, then we're crushed. If you're someone who says, I don't care what anybody thinks, I hope you don't mean that. That's a dark path to go down. Here's the thing. We are hardwired to crave acceptance, affirmation, and approval. But it will only satisfy when it comes from your creator, who has hardwired you for his approval. And to prove that he wants you to have this very good verdict on your life, that you could walk out of here with that very good verdict. He sent me here to tell you that he sent his greatest joy and love, his own son, to die a horrible death. So you can see that first he's a just creator who will deal with all sins, all the bad things that's ever happened on this planet. But secondly, how merciful he is. There's only one place in the Bible where it talks about God being rich in something. Ephesians 2.4. God is rich in mercy. It flows out of his heart. He's 100% just, but he is rich in mercy. So Jesus leaves us now with two ways. The way of self-exaltation that will lead to disaster or the way of humility that frees you from all facades because you are fully known already. He died for all your sins. He knows them all. And yet you're greatly loved. Friends, in Christ, because of the cross, I can declare you very good from your Father. And friends, all that is required for you to come to Jesus, if you haven't yet, is for you to feel your need of him and come. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, be propitiated. Have mercy on us. Each of us declares we are the sinner. We ask and pray, Father, that you will send your Holy Spirit to confirm by your word the very good verdict. And we ask and pray that you'll begin that work of, of helping us die to our old sinful self and to live more and more into righteousness to the praise of your glorious grace. And I pray that you help us also to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, the one who loved us all the way to the cross and now is in heaven even now praying for us. And Lord, when we become distracted and begin to look down on others, I pray that you help us to repent. When criticism comes our way and we instantly bristle, I pray that we'll put down those spikes and, 
and accept the criticism, Lord, because we're far worse than the person talking bad about us can even imagine. Help us to do this because we recognize through this humility we don't become doormats, but rather we start to become saints because Christ in us becomes more and more real. Have mercy on us, we ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen.